We're glad that you're here today. Welcome to our services. We want to welcome our Smyrna campus. We're glad you were able to be a part of this, uh, setting apart of these men to serve as elders uh, there at the Smyrna campus. We welcome all those that are connecting online as well. We have been in a series called Three Days That Changed the World. And, of course, last week we talked about the resurrection. We focused on, on that event that culminated those three days that have made all the difference in the history of the world. Today we're going to take a step beyond the resurrection to see, well, what happened then? Those three days, they're, they're the most significant three days in the history of the world. But, but what happened immediately after those three days after the resurrection? There was a lady who was driving too fast down the highway, and she got pulled over by a police officer, and he was, uh, came up to the window of her car, and she said, uh, rolled down the window, said, is there a problem, officer? He said, yes, ma'am, you're speeding. She said, oh, I see. He said, can I see your license, please? She says, well, no, I can't do that. He said, well, why not? She says, I don't have one. I lost it four years ago for drunk driving. He said, okay, all right. Uh, can I see your vehicle registration, please? She says, I don't have that either. He said, well, why wouldn't you have that? She said, because I stole this car. He said, excuse me, you stole the car? She said, yeah, I, I stole the car, and then I killed and hacked up the owner. He put his hand on his gun, and he said, what? She said, yeah, his body parts are in plastic bags in the trunk, if you want to see. And the officer immediately realizes how serious this situation is, and he begins to back up, and he took out his gun. And he said, you keep your hands up where I can see them. You stay right there. Don't you make a move. And he went back to his car, reached through the window, got his, got his mic, and he called for backup. And within a few minutes, five cars, patrol cars, pulled in just flying into the scene and surrounded the car. Officers got out, guns drawn. A senior officer connected with that officer that had arrested the lady or pulled her over and got an update on what was going on. So he walked up to the car window with his hand on his gun and he said, ma'am, would you step out of the car, please? Keep your hands where I can see them. She says, of course I will, officer. Is there some kind of problem? He said, one of my officers told me that you've stolen this car and murdered the owner. She said, murdered the owner? He said, yes. Could you please open the trunk of your car? She said, of course I can. She walked around and opened the trunk and nothing there. Just an empty trunk. He said, is this your car, ma'am? She says, yes, it is. He said, well, he said, you didn't have the registration papers. And she said, well, I have them out on the seat in the car right there. He walked up and looked in the window, and there were the registration papers in the seat of the car. He said, he said, you didn't have a license, that you'd lost it for drunk driving. She says, my license are there with the papers. You can look at them. He picked up the papers and the license, and he looked them over, and everything was in order. It was in her name, listed that car. Everything was exactly the way it was supposed to be. He said, well, I appreciate this, ma'am. Uh, one of my officers told me you didn't have a license. You stole this car. You murdered and hacked up the owner. She looked at him and said, I bet that liar told you I was speeding, too. <laughs> one of the things about this series we've been looking at, the three days that changed the world, 
It's how over and over again the scriptures emphasize the evidence that we have to support our faith. I heard this said many years ago, and I really liked it. It said, the Bible doesn't read like a lie. And if you think about it, that's true. If these men were trying to write about something that didn't actually happen, they wouldn't give all these details that are so specific. I mean, it's easy when they wrote these details down, they wrote them during the same time period that all of these things happened. They wrote them down while people were still alive that were around that witnessed everything that happened. If you'd been trying to write a lie, you never would have included details that they could easily check out and find out. Those aren't right. But they included all of those details. Very specific things that everybody at the time could easily check out for themselves and find out if they're true or not. In fact, these authors that gave all these details encouraged the people to check them out for themselves to see that they were true. And today we're going to be looking at another account where that same kind of thing happens again. It's found in the book of Acts. If you will turn with me there in Acts chapter 1, we're going to start there with verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. And today we're going to focus on after Jesus rose from the dead, it says that he appeared for a 40-day period. He made appearances and did things during that 40 days. And it says specifically he did it to give them even more evidence where they could have certainty in their faith and in what they believed. I want to pick up in Acts 1 and verse 1. It's written by Luke, and here's what he says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So Luke immediately, in writing what we now know as the book of Acts, it was also sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, he says, I wrote another book, Theophilus. Remember, before this one, I wrote another one. We know that book as the Gospel of Luke. That's the other letter book that we have that Luke wrote. And he said, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And how he gave this specific instructions that he gave the apostles before he was taken up. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke for just a minute. And remind you of what he said there. And, and in Luke 1, he said this, beginning that gospel. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have, fulfilled, uh, that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, were the first, who, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Listen to what he says. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Do you understand how over and over again the writers of what we know as the Bible, the scriptures that we have, wanted to give us all the details and all the evidence and all the supporting arguments for what we believe so that we could have certainty in our faith? This, this is well-attested to things that he's writing about. He says, I was an eyewitness to all of it from the very beginning, and I carefully investigated it all. Do you know what Luke's profession was? He was a physician. Now, not all physicians are like this, but 
the majority of physicians have to be very detail-oriented, don't they? You want them to be, don't you? Your physician, you want him to be detail-oriented or her to be detail-oriented because if they're not paying attention to details, you could be like the commercial where a cell phone is inside your body after surgery, right? And Luke was a physician. He was somebody that was accustomed to examining and analyzing the details of things. And he said, I carefully did this when it came to Jesus. And I've written down these details for you so that you could have certainty in your faith. And I appreciate that. The Bible just doesn't read like a lie. It reads like something that was carefully researched and sought out and, and had plenty of evidence to support it. That's how it is written. And that's how we can read it and understand it today. So now I want to pick up with uh, what happens to Jesus as he has risen from the dead. And he's got this period now before he goes back to be with the Father. We're focusing on the ascension, but let's look at what leads up to the ascension. The first thing on your outline today is Jesus' conclusion to his ministry. What, what did he do in those 40 days? Well, the first thing is he made many different appearances during those 40 days. Let's look at verse 3. After his suffering, this is uh, Luke telling us that after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave, here's that phrase, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus wanted to make sure they knew with certainty? That he was alive, that he had conquered sin, he had conquered the grave. He didn't want them to have any doubt about that. You know why? He was expecting them to launch this new kingdom, the church. And he knew they couldn't do that if they had doubts about who he was and what had happened. So he gave them all the evidence they needed to be absolutely certain. Now, how do we know how well this worked? Here's how we know. They immediately began proclaiming that story as true, even at the risk of their lives. And they consistently did that until their deaths. They had seen something so convincing, so many convincing things, that even in the threat of torture and death, they never changed their story. It just doesn't read like a lie, does it? It reads like this is something they were totally convinced of, or they would never have done what they did in response to it. So, he, over a period of 40 days, and if you read through the Gospels, you see an account of some of those appearances. At one point, it said he appeared to over 500 at one time. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to, to uh, the 120 uh, that were following him at that point, and, and, and he still was giving them evidence upon evidence. I said last week, he even did some, some typical things that you would do if you or a living human being. He, he saw them out fishing. He cooked fish up on the beach. He grilled out there and invited them to come eat fish with him, and he sat down and ate a meal with them on the beach. I mean, that's pretty good evidence that he's alive and well after the resurrection. And evidence upon evidence, appearance after appearance, over a period of 40 days, now, the reason that's so important is because it sets Jesus apart. Remember, last week we talked about this some. It sets him apart from every other teacher that's ever lived or ever will live. A lot of other teachers have some good stuff to say, but none of them went to the grave and came out again. Only Jesus 
proves that he did that, which means only Jesus has the authority to have rule over my life. Nobody else does. But Jesus has that authority because he's conquered sin and death. So he gave, he gave me appearances. He, he, he appeared to them many times to give them that evidence they needed. And then he gave some specific instructions to them during that 40-day period. It says in verse 4 and 5, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's some specific things he tells them to do here. First, after I leave you right here, I want you to wait where? What, what city? Jerusalem, right? And that's important for a lot of reasons, but especially for fulfillment of Scripture, for fulfillment of prophecy, it's really important that they wait in Jerusalem specifically like Jesus is telling them to do. And he said, here's what I want you to wait for. I want you to wait for the gift my father promised. Jesus has told them about this giftedness, this gifting that God was going to give them so that they could do the work that he was calling them to do. We know that what he's talking about, he goes on to say, is that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That word baptized means to be immersed in, okay? So he's saying you're going to be immersed with, filled with, covered with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to equip you to do what I'm calling you to do after I leave you. Now, this is important for them for a lot of reasons. One is for comfort, right? Jesus is not going to be with them anymore. And they already saw him die, and they went through that, and that was hard. That was heartbreaking. And now he's alive, but he's not going to stay there with them. So, so Jesus is reassuring them, even though I'm not going to be with you anymore, I am going to have the presence of my Spirit there with you, empowering you after I go. But it also would encourage them to know God's not just leaving them alone now and, and going to be an absentee father and, and just expect them to do everything by their own strength and their own power. That's not what God's asking them to do. He's going to provide for them the power and the wisdom and the direction they need to do the job that he's wanting them to do after he leaves. Now, part of that job was clearly delineated by Jesus in Matthew 28. We know it as the Great Commission. This is after the resurrection as Jesus is talking to his disciples. It says in verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what are you going to do now? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He's saying, since I have all authority, not just in heaven but also on earth, then in my name and by my power, I'm sending you out now to go and make church members. Is that what he said? Make believers? Is that what he said? No, he said make what? Disciples. He's saying, I'm sending you out to make disciples, disciplined followers of, uh, of Jesus and his teachings. 
He says, I want you to bring them to me in such a way that they are ready to commit to following after me, learning what I teach, and obeying what I teach. That's what he wants the church to do, make disciples. And that's quite different than what a lot of churches are doing. A lot of churches, and I'm not trying to criticize any particular person. I'm, I'm warning us as a church to be careful about this, is you could get caught up in just putting people in the seats without making disciples. You could get caught up in reporting how many conversions we had this year instead of how many disciples were made this year. How many new disciplined followers of Jesus did we make this year? That's the most important. That's the command. That's the instruction, isn't it? To actually make disciples. And that's a lot harder than getting somebody to pray a prayer and let Jesus in their heart. It's easy to emotionally get somebody to do something like that. It's a totally different game when you say, oh, yeah, but, but that's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want you to stop with that. He wants you to follow his teachings now for the rest of your life. That's a whole different ballgame. And he's saying, I'm commanding you to go and make disciples. And he says, baptizing them is part of making them a disciple. That's why I'm still so amazed that so many churches will say, we added them to the church, and now, later on, we're going to have a baptism Sunday and, and get them baptized. But making them a disciple includes doing what? Baptizing them. Well, if they're going to be a disciple, shouldn't they go ahead and obey the first thing he says to do, which is be baptized? That's part of becoming a disciple of Jesus. You don't become a disciple without that part of it. And he said, make disciples, right? So baptism is a part of that process of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's why we do it at the same time someone comes and says, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Because we're here to make disciples and baptizing them is part of making disciples. So I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. But then he adds this, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Whew, man, I'm so glad he put that in there. Because if this was left up to us and our power and our persuasion and our ability to get this done, we'd never get this done. But he says, I'm with you in this. Don't, don't think you're on your own by yourself. And that's why you could connect that with what Jesus said that's recorded for us in Acts. And that is, I'm going to give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower you for this work, for this job that I've called you to. So he gave them specific instructions. Wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive this power. You're going to start being my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and then going to the whole world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he, he shared an exciting vision with them as the next thing here. Look at verse 6 through 9. Then they gathered around him. I think they're getting excited now, right? They're sad that he's going to be leaving them, but, and they don't even know yet exactly how that's going to happen or when it's going to happen. But they, they, you know how when somebody's starting to tell them something that you're interested in, how sometimes you just kind of step in a little closer? That's what these guys did. Jesus is talking to them. Their interest is really tweaked with what he just said about this power that they need to wait for in Jerusalem. And so they step in a little closer around Jesus, and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're still thinking a little bit about an earthly kind of kingdom. That's what they had been raised with. That's what their whole, whole, whole uh, cultural upbringing had been about. 
And Jesus is trying to get them to see that his kingdom is not of this world. He's been trying to teach that the whole time, but that it's a spiritual kingdom. And he says to them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by on his authority. But here's what he went on to tell them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. That's the city. He told them to wait in. And all Judea, that's the province that uh, Jerusalem is in. And Samaria, which is the province just south of where they are at that point. And beyond that, to the ends of the earth. He says, but it's all going to start in Jerusalem when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what I'm calling you to do. What an exciting vision Jesus just laid out for them. That this little handful of people being empowered by the Holy Spirit is going to start something really small in Jerusalem in one little place, but it's going to impact the whole world. And he's going to empower them with what they need to get this done, to accomplish this huge, big vision that Jesus gave them. But then it says in verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up from their very eyes, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They're all excited. Yeah, we're going to do great things, big things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts going up. And they're thinking, wait a minute. I know he said he'd never leave us or forsake us, and there he goes. All right. This great vision put right in front of them. And then they see Jesus leave, go back to the Father. And, and God knew he needed to provide some explanation for them. So we see the second thing on your outline I want us to focus on today is the angel's explanation for what just took place. Okay? He gives them some clarification. In verses 9 through 11, uh, I want to go back to verse 9 and then pick up there and, and go through verse 11. There we see that God provided, again, an appearance of angels to reassure and encourage and comfort his people. If you read through scriptures, oftentimes angels, uh, angels appeared just for that purpose many, many times. Remember with Mary when she was going to be told that she was going to have this baby? Joseph needed to be convinced that that was what was going on, that she was still a virgin, and an angel appears to him. Oftentimes, God would send these messengers to reassure and encourage and comfort, and he does that here for these apostles. Uh, and the angel's appearance, I think, was more evidence that God was giving them of the divinity of Jesus. They demonstrated his divinity when they appeared. Look at verse 9 again. Let's pick up there and go into verse 10. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Now, I love the phrase, uh, the NIV is being very kind when it says they were looking intently into the sky. Uh, a better word in English might be they were gawking. Mouth wide open. You know, that dumbfounded look when you got no clue what just happened, why it happened, how it happened. I, I think we, we would all be doing that if we saw something like this, right? It would, I mean, we, we're hard. Uh, the culture today, it's hard to get people to be amazed at anything. But there's still, you know, like some magicians or some people like that that can do some trick that you just can't figure out. And you just go, huh? How, how did he do that, right? It just gets you. Well, I believe this was an occasion like that when when that happened, they just went, huh? 
How in the world did he just do that? And it's one more reminder that he's divine. You see, they knew him as this person on earth in the flesh, but he had existed before the creation of the world. He was God, and he came and clothed himself in the flesh, but now he's going back to where he came from, where he had already existed for all eternity, and now he's going back to that place again. And they needed that visual to know that when they didn't see Jesus anymore, they needed to know where he was and why he wasn't there in the flesh anymore. And so God has given them more evidence and more support and more comfort, more encouragement for them to understand that they need to go on now doing what he's called them to do and that he's not dead. He's very much alive, but now he's reigning with the Father again. It says, They looked intently into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Oftentimes when what we call angels appear in Scripture, they are described as they look like normal human beings, except their clothes would be brilliant. It would look like they were just glowing. And that's why you see many paintings or or sculptures now that give the impression that there's this glow around the angels because oftentimes that glow is described as part of their presence. The angels by the tomb, it said their clothes glowed by the tomb when the women got there. So we know that the presence of of these angelic beings, a lot of scholars believe, and I'm inclined to think this too, that part of their glow is they've been in the presence of God. Remember when Moses got the Ten Commandments from God? Remember when he came back down to the people, he had to put a veil over his face because he glowed so brightly from having been in the presence of God? This appearance of these two men would would remind these apostles, these are people who came from the presence of God to tell you these things. They just came directly from the presence of God. What a reassurance for these apostles to get this this reminder that, that Jesus is not gone, gone. He's just going back to where he had been before, and God is making sure they understand that. And we know that when he left, he took his place at the right hand of God. Mark records that for us in Mark 16 and verse 19. It says, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Now, again, we have to understand their culture a little bit to know what that meant to them to specifically say he's at the right hand of God the Father. That was a position of authority and power and decision. Jesus is now seated in that position of all. Remember he said all authority, all power has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. He went to that position of all authority, all power, all dominion at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus went to. When he ascended back to heaven, to the presence of his father, sitting there at his right hand in that position of power and authority. So they need to know he is not just their absentee now for them. He's there ruling with all authority and all power. And he said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm there for you with that authority, with that power, with that ruling power. I'm still there for you. But I'm doing it from there now, that position of power. See, he had humbled himself and became an obedient servant. Now he's back to that position of all authority, all power over everything. That's who we have on our side now, reigning and ruling for us, who has conquered sin and death for us. And these 
angelic beings proclaimed his return. Look at verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, that gives you the impression, I think it's probably true, that even as they started talking to them, they looked at them for a minute, and then what did they do? They did this again. He's up there. They're still looking up in the air, right? Still looking up in the sky where they saw him go, where the cloud hit him from their sight. So why are you standing here looking into the sky? I love how it's worded that they said it this way. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven. Not, not some spiritual power, not some universal, universal force out there that's just kind of around us. This very personal Jesus that you know, that you spent three years with in ministry, that you saw do all these miracles, this very same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, is going to come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. How did they see him go? In the clouds. How's he going to come back? In the clouds. The same Jesus is going to come back. Next week we're going to talk more about his return. But this was another evidence they had that Jesus could not only talk about returning, he could do it. They've seen him go back to the Father, and they, they think if he can do that, then he could certainly come back down again like he did before. So they are given the explanation they need of the proclamation that Jesus is going to return. But they've been told what they need to do in the meantime, right? They've been given the instructions. Wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive this promise. You're going to be empowered. You're going to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. Now, what does a witness do? You testify to what you see, to what you know, what you've experienced. You give testimony to that. He said, you're going to start being my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then going to the whole world with that. Well, let's close today by looking at the disciples' reaction to all that took place that day. In Acts chapter 2, we'll pick up with verse 1 there we see that they obeyed by waiting in Jerusalem. It said, when the day of Pentecost came, the next Jewish feast on the calendar there, after that 40-day period, after Passover, comes Pentecost on their Jewish uh, calendar. And there on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. What city are they in? Jerusalem. Where were they told to wait? Seems like a simple thing, right? Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. What were they supposed to do? So what did they do? Wouldn't life be better if we all just did that? Jesus said, do this. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do it. And if we do it, what does Jesus do? Whatever he said he was going to do. He told them to wait in Jerusalem. What was going to happen? They're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting in Jerusalem just like... See, we are reminded here of how important it is, it is to do those simple day-to-day acts of obedience consistently. You know what I found most Christians want? Is they want to be part of the big things without doing the daily little things they're supposed to be doing. I want to have a good marriage, but I don't want to do daily what it takes to have a good solid marriage. I want to have good kids, but I don't want to be that parent that does all the work that you have to do and puts up with all the stuff, right? 
And I want to change the world. And I see, especially, I, I was at a, a conference this week, and we had a lot of uh, millennials and, and Gen Z uh, focus on uh, reaching them and what their views are today. And, and the younger millennials and the, and the Gen Zs that are coming up behind them, one of the main things you hear from them is, we want to impact the world. We want to do something significant. But you know what they don't get sometimes? It's going to take daily acts of obedience to get there. You don't do that just by walking out there and declaring it. It's the consistency over time, acts of obedience, that get the big things done. Sometimes all you see is the big things. Like, did you watch the NFL draft this week? You saw some kids walk out. These are still just young adults, right? And, and shake a hand and put on a hat and hold up a jersey. And waiting on them on the backside of that is millions of dollars that will change their lives dramatically, sometimes for great good, sometimes not so much. But all you see sometimes, you haven't heard of some of these kids, but you see them walk out on stage and get that draft pick. You don't see the work, the sacrifice that families have made, that coaches have made, that the athletes themselves have made. You don't see that. Now, I, I want to thank some of the sports channels did a great job of showing some of the backstories for some of these kids and how they got to that place. And some of the stories would just break your heart to see what they went through, and they're all there getting this opportunity that's being handed to them. But don't think for a minute that they were just born so gifted that they can walk out there and be drafted in the NFL. No, that doesn't happen that way for anybody. The same thing is true in impacting the world significantly in a way that matters for Christ. You don't just wake up one day and just do that without the daily disciplines, the spiritual disciplines that God calls you to in your life that get you to that position where God can use you that way. Because if you haven't done that, then if he did give you that great success, you know what would happen? It has happened. There's also great moral failures that take place and things that embarrass Christ in the church that take place because those people didn't stay with the daily disciplines that God was calling them to. It could happen to your pastor. It could happen to any leader in any church anywhere that if you don't stick with those daily disciplines that you need to have in your life, Satan has a way of getting you gradually away from where God wants you into something you never intended to be in. You see, the great things, in order to give glory to God, are always backed up by the daily walk that God has called you to. And, and so we need to know that obeying is critically important. And because they obeyed, here's the next thing, they experienced the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus will do what he says when you obey him. He'll, he'll keep his promises. Look at verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own what? Language being spoken. Wait a minute. There's a whole church movement today that calls tongue speaking something other than this. When the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in other tongues, that word tongues is just the Greek word for languages. All right? That's all that word is. They're able to speak in other languages. 
And it doesn't say they were unknown languages. In the King James, it says unknown in the sense that they were unknown to the apostles. These are languages they had never studied. They didn't know how to speak these known languages. And the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak so that that crowd that gathered there from all these different places for the Feast of Pentecost could hear the message in their own native language. It goes on in the next few verses. It says they not only heard them speaking in their language, but in their own dialect of that language. You know what that means? If I had been there, that I would have heard them speaking in English, not 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 the formal English, right? Not the king's English. It would have been American English. And not just American English, it would have been Southern style. <laughs> That's how specific this is. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak, not just in the language of the people that were there, but in their dialect, in, their, in a way they could hear it and recognize it and understand it easily. And the reason they're bewildered is these apostles, they knew, weren't the kind of men that had the kind of education where they could speak all these different languages. It was a miracle. But it was not what some people are calling tongues today in churches today. Now, that's the only word ever used in Scripture for these tongues. And I believe God's not a God of confusion. So when he says this is what it means here, and he uses that same word again, what does it mean there? And he uses the same word again. What does it mean there? Unless he gives us a different explanation, which he doesn't. So what would tongues be today? The same thing it was then. I, I think God can still do that. And if he empowers somebody to do that, that's great. If we had somebody here today that only knew German and needed to hear the message in German and God gave me the ability to speak in German, I would go with that. I think that's great. Now, he hasn't done that yet. The only German I know comes from Hogan's Heroes. But other than that, <laughs> and that's not even real German. So. But don't take away from the miracle that this is. This is a huge miracle. That's a, it's a magnificent thing. And we ought to celebrate it as something God did for them that was needed at that time to get the crowd's attention there. We had the sound of the rushing wind. That got their attention. You heard them speaking in your own language. That got your attention. And now they've got an audience ready, gathered, and ready to listen to the preaching of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what happened next. They began proclaiming the good news. Look at Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. Peter stood up from the other apostles, among the other apostles and began to preach the gospel. You know what Jesus had promised Peter? I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, what do you do with keys? You unlock and open doors, don't you? Who got to preach the gospel for the first time and unlock the door to the kingdom? Peter. Just like Jesus had promised him he would do for him. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. <laughs> this is like I do sometimes. Pay attention, all right? Pay attention. You with me? Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So he reminds them of what they already know. Jesus was shown to be who he was, who he claimed to be, by the miracles and the wonders and signs that God did in him, through him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. In other words, you didn't control this. God was ultimately in control of all of this. This was his plan by God's set plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, that would be the Romans, 
put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24 is the key of the gospel. But God. But God raised him from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, he goes on to give more evidence and more testimony to all of this. And he finishes up the sermon in verse 36 this way. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is Lord, which means ruler, has all authority over everything. And Messiah, which means he's the anointed one, the one God promised to send to deliver them uh, and save them. So he is both of those things at the same time. And when the people heard this in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. That means they were convicted about what they had done, of the sin in their lives that put Jesus on that cross. What we have to remember is this. The Holy Spirit convicts. Peter's preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching the word that the Holy Spirit guides him to speak. And the Holy Spirit works on the hearts of people when the word is proclaimed and he convicts them of their sin. And under that conviction, they ask the most important question anybody can ever ask. We'll see it in Scripture here. Brothers, what shall we do? What, what do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call, will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Same day. They didn't set up a baptism Sunday next month, right? Right when they made the decision. They were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. When were they added? After they were what? Baptized. That's how you make disciples, right? Baptism is not the only thing, but it's part of the process of making a disciple is baptizing them. They had to believe. They had to repent, right? Had to go through that process. But then if they did believe and were repentant, then they needed to be baptized at that point. And then they were added to their number that day. Friends, that's the beginning of the new work of the kingdom of the church. It started in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said. You wait here, you're going to get the power, and the process is going to start where the gospel is being proclaimed and people are going to be brought into the kingdom of God. We are simply a continuation of that right here, right now, today. So today, maybe there's someone who's saying in their heart and mind, I understand I'm a sinner that I need forgiveness. And if you're asking what you need to do, if you've got any doubt about what process you need to go through, I'm just going to quote Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's why I'm going to quote Peter, because he said this promise is not just for you or your children. It's for all whom the Lord our God will call. Maybe he's calling you today. Let's pray together. Father, as, we, as we're reminded today of these three days that changed the world, we're also reminded that all of that was leading up to the beginning that we looked at today where the gospel was going to be proclaimed 
and lives were going to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They were going to come repenting of their sins, being baptized into Christ. Disciples were going to be made who then are going to be taught to grow up to be like Jesus. Help us as your church to be faithful to that call in this place at this time. And just now, Father, we extend that promise that you've made and offer it to all who are here who might need to take those steps today. Father, may your spirit be working to convict them and draw them to you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.